everybody. A special shout out to all the Pusan family that's joining us for today. Um, really, really excited to have Pusan family with us, uh, joining with us today. And once again, um, you know, as, as it was previously announced, oh, actually, I'm, I'm able to take off my mask. Um, behind the scenes and behind these cameras, you can't see it, but everybody else is wearing a mask, so we're doing our part to keep everybody safe. But yes, as I was saying, um, it was previously announced that the weeks that we are doing online-only uh, services, we will be hosting our services at 11 a.m. Uh, we figured that it was a little bit awkward for people who are staying at home um, to kind of tune in in the middle of the day. And so we want to do the best we can to accommodate for people's schedules. And so for the next few weeks and for however long we're being asked to meet online only, we'll be doing it at 11 a.m. I saw some people on the chat, you know, that are joining us, you know, from the uh, from Canada. And I'm sure this time is also very helpful for those who are joining us from the other side of the ocean. And so thank you for joining us today. Um, before I, uh, before I share the title for today's sermon, uh, today is a very special Sunday. We're actually going to be talking about the vision statement that, um, we reworked, uh, last year. We went through a process of praying through and discerning what would be our vision statement as a church moving forward. And so for those of you guys who have very good memory, I, I'm looking at the live chat right now. And for the first person who types out what the vision statement is, a new vision statement is that was preached on, I believe, last October or November. Um, I will get you, I'll send you a gift certificate through Kakao. So ready, set, go. If anybody, no, nobody in the room here. No, you're not allowed to do that. Nobody in the room. But people who are watching online, people in the room have an advantage because there's a slight lag. And so <laughs> they get to do it first. All right, I'm looking, I'm looking. Ooh, uh, calling all to the feast. Yes, yes, so. Yeah, good, good elder. <laughs> Welcome all to the feast. Close. I guess it has something to do with that. All right, yes, so I, um, I'm going to send you, uh, through Kakao, I'm going to send you a gift certificate. And so, yes, that is our vision statement um, moving forward as New Philly Church. It is calling all to the feast. Calling all to the feast. <laughs> uh, wow, sorry, James. Hey, you guys are one. James, you can let Yesel receive the gift. <laughs> but um, moving on, yes, yeah, so calling all to the feast. Um, it is quite an interesting time for us to go over uh, this vision statement because it's been such a challenging year. In the midst of such a challenging year, um, and a fellow pastor at the beginning of the year, this is what he said about this season of pandemic and you know financial crisis and all that is happening this year, 2020. This is what he said at the beginning of the year. He said, you'll either come out of this year closer to Jesus or further away from him. You'll either come out of 2020 having gotten much closer, much more intimate, much more grounded in who Jesus is, or you'll walk out of this year being further away from him than ever before. And in the midst of all the things that are so disorienting in today's world, 
It's important for us to get reconnected with what is it that we must hold on to. Sometimes as we're navigating through these times, it's easy for us to say, all right, don't do this and don't do that. Don't binge on Netflix too much. You know, don't get isolated too much. You know, don't go outside without your mask and all these don'ts, things that we shouldn't do. But we seldom focus on, okay, what then is it that we ought to hone in on? What is it that we should focus on? And so we need to go into this season or continue on this season, not just reacting to what's happening around us. We can't just let decisions be made for us. We need to take a stand. We need to identify what we want the season to be about. And so today's message in going over our vision statement as a house, it is more than just, hey, let's review something that's important. It actually has massive implications and how we ride out this season as well. Now, this is full disclosure. Um, I have to admit that personally for me, for the longest time, I've actually been very skeptical about church vision statements in general, not just for our church, but in general. Like for me, this is my, you know, my, uh, the way that I think about it, how unique can it actually be? You know, like maybe we will reward, we will reword something and we will reframe something and maybe come up with something catchy, but basically aren't all churches called to the same thing? Aren't all believers called to the same thing? But as we prayed into this last year, I've begun to realize that it's so much more than just like a tagline, like a cool slogan, like New Philadelphia Church calling all to the feast. Like, wow, that sounds so put together. That sounds so cool and like catchy. It's more than just that. It actually paints how we view God, how we view the gospel, and how we view our own response and our own role when it comes to what we've been called to do. And so let me start with this mental picture. So growing up, I grew up in South America. And one of the things that South Americans do very well is eat. We eat really, really well. And we had these barbecues growing up. And we're not just talking about, let me slap a couple of hot dogs and like, you know, buns on the grill. We're talking about like piles of meat. Like piles of meat on the grill. We have visitors coming through our backyard. We have, you know, our friends and family friends. We have a pool there. And so we kind of dip in and out of the water. And then we have like piles of food on the table. And it's an all day ordeal. And that's what you call a normal Saturday. <laughs> like that's what it was like. And this is the way that uh, me and my brothers were raised. To, to know that our doors are open, that we have friends over very regularly, and that our family is called to host uh, these times of just like no rush. You don't need to leave at a certain time. Like we'll eat slowly. We'll pick at food all day. Um, and there is no rush to get out of here. And we are just, you know, doing life together. And that's the way that we were raised for the longest time. 
Now, this is something that we've actually kept throughout the years as well, even as we've left our home, um, especially now that we actually live uh, in three different countries. My, my you know, immediate family, actually, we live in three different countries now. My parents are still in Chile. My older brother and his family, um, they are in California. And me and my younger brother and his now wife, we all live in Korea. And so because we are all spread out throughout the globe, it's even more important for us to be so intentional about the times that we do get together. And so even last year, we were able to have a reunion in California. And so people who are here in Korea, we flew out to California. And people in Chile, they flew out to California. And that's where we met. And it was like no time had passed. So, like, we would get together because of jet lag. People would wake up at odd times and, like, we'd have conversations in the middle of the night, whoever's up at 3 a.m. And we'd just cook throughout the day and we'd have just, you know, a big table that is covered in food. And we would just sit there and eat. No phones, no distractions, and we would just enjoy one another's company. And this is something that I've loved so much about the way that I was raised. Um, my parents were really strict about, you know, no distractions. You're not allowed to have the TV on. You're not allowed to bring your phones to the table. Like, they're very strict about this is family time. And we're going to have an actual conversation with one another. This is how I view what it means like to gather around a table with family. And so my question as we go into what does it mean to call all to the feast, there's three basic proponents to it three main pillars to it, and we talked about it late last year. The first is feasting and God together. Feasting on God together. This is basically the great commandment. We're called to love God and to love one another. Now, let me ask you this question. Have you ever been in the company and, you know, maybe shared a meal with someone who actually doesn't want you to be there? Like... It's like every minute drags and you feel really, really uncomfortable and the conversation kind of starts and stops and starts and stops and you're just counting down the minutes until, you know, this is, this ordeal is over. And if you're like myself, I'm actually really self-conscious. Like as we're trying to have a conversation in my mind, there's like a, another, you know, conversation happening in my head of like, am I making them uncomfortable? Like, am I in, like in, Am I being an inconvenience? Am I burdening them? Um, Is something that I'm doing offending them? And so I'll have these thoughts in my mind, and I can't actually be fully present when I feel like I'm unwelcome. Like this time is an infringement. And so this is what it feels like when you feel like you're not actually connecting face-to-face. But on the other hand, have you ever had those times where you meet with friends that you've known forever, and maybe you haven't seen each other in a long time, but the moment you get together, it's like no time has passed. You pick up right where you left off, and you are catching up with each other, and as good as the food is, it's like second plane. Like you're not even thinking about how good the food is. You're actually so absorbed in that conversation that you can't help but lose track of time. That's what it feels like when you're with someone who you feel a strong connection with and you're so fully present that you're not counting down the minutes. In fact, you're probably going to be late to whatever else it is that you have to do after this conversation. Now, did you know that God wants to be this kind of person to you? The kind of person that can spend time with you and not feel like, oh, 
Susie has actually more important things to get to. Like, I'm actually cutting in on her time. Like, she actually doesn't want to be here with me. She actually doesn't want to spend this time. She's just doing me a favor by spending this time with me. Did you know that God actually wants to be someone who's welcomed and who's, you know, who you love to spend time with, where you enjoy your time? Where you are actually so fully present and so enjoying and savoring and delighting in this time together that you lose track of time. Now, here's the thing with the gospel. God isn't just to believe, be believed in and obeyed. Although that's also very important. There must be a sense of enjoyment and celebration as we follow God. It doesn't mean that every moment is enjoyable. It doesn't mean that there won't be hard times. But if it's only difficult, if your relationship with God, it's only hard. It's only sacrifice. It's only gritting your teeth and doing what you don't want to do. It's only a struggle. Then we are missing out on the best part of the gospel. What we mean by feasting on God together is this. God, the Father has spread a banquet table, a feast in front of us, the riches of the gospel, his kindness, his power, his sovereignty, his compassion, his forgiveness, his presence. He spread out a table in front of us and has called us to firsthand taste and see that he is good. And I want to emphasize firsthand, it's not enough for you, for your house church leader to have this firsthand experience. It's not enough for you for your pastors to have that experience. You yourself, no matter how long or how short you've been following the Lord, you yourself have to firsthand taste and see that God is good. And that is an integral part of the gospel. It's not the cherry on top. It's not the bonus. It's not the extra, the chuga. It's the main dish of the gospel. Believing in the redemptive work of the cross That isn't just for the sake of avoiding eternal hell. It isn't just for the sake of the forgiveness of your sins. But we need to believe that the cross has taken care of your brokenness and sin in order for you to come to the table. In order for you to come to the Father. In order for you to enjoy this feast that is God. The veil is torn. Your sins have been forgiven. And now we are able to boldly approach the throne of grace, not hesitatingly, not like, oh, does he really want me to be there? But we are called to boldly approach the throne of grace. We are called to approach the inapproachable holiness of God because of the gospel. And that's what it means to feast on God. We're called to enjoy this. Dude, if we're called to not enjoy this, then I'm out of this. Like, I don't want to do ministry. I don't want to follow God, not just for the next five years, but for the next 40 years. I don't want, I don't want to sign up for that. But if I know that God delights in me, he loves to spend time with me. And my walk with the Lord is supposed to bring enjoyment and delight. Then that changes everything. And that is how we ought to view the gospel. In the words of Matthew 22, it says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is a first and greatest commandment. It doesn't say obey the Lord your God with all your heart. It doesn't say, you know, just do what you need to do. It actually says love. 
not just believe in, not just listen to, not just serve. These are all important. But what it says is love. Like God actually drops the L-bomb in this verse. There's no way to get around it. You can't just get marching orders and just do what you're told. You actually are called and designed and empowered to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because did you know that actual, if it only boiled down to obedience, that would actually be fairly easy. Obedience actually is not that hard. Being a servant is actually pretty easy. You just do what you're told. You get marching orders and you do it. But love is a different ball game altogether. That is a game changer. Jesus says that he no longer just calls us servants, but friends. God also says that we're not, no longer slaves, but we're we become sons and daughters. And that means not just obeying the Lord as important as that is. It means not just following the Lord. It means loving the Lord, your God. It means you become open. It means you become vulnerable. It means that you become open to hurt, open to rejection, open to disillusionment. And it means that you need to take the courage to bring your walls down and actually let somebody in. Now, as daunting as that sounds, here's the good news. Good news number one is that God's love is perfect. He's not going to fail you. He's not going to reject you. He's not going to let you down. He's not going to grow tired of you and disinterested and bored in you. He will not take advantage of you. He's faithful. He's steadfast. He's sacrificial in his love. He's patient, enduring, forgiving. He's a safe person to talk to. Do you have friends like that where, you know, you actually don't feel like you have to act like you have things all together, but you can actually feel safe in being very vulnerable and open and honest with them. He's actually even a safe person to make mistakes in front of. You are actually safe. The safest person in the entire world that you can make mistakes in front of is God. That is good news. Number one, his love is perfect. God is perfect. Good news number two is that we're also able to love because he first loved us. So our love towards God is not self-initiated, is not self-perpetuated, it's not self-propagated. God designed it. So this is a positive feedback loop where he first loves you. He first initiates. He is first the perfect lover. He is first the one that while we were yet sinners, he dies for us and he shows his love to us. He first makes himself fully vulnerable and open before us, rejectable before us. He starts it off. And from there, we're called to simply respond to that. And that is what frees us to love without agenda and without condition. Because he already did it for us. The reason we love him isn't so that we can get something from him. Because he already gave it all. It is a simple response to a God who has made himself vulnerable. A God who first delights in us. He first feasts with us. He's a God who loves to spend time with us. And from that place, that just becomes such a freeing thing where you no longer have to prove yourself that you are worthy of being in that place. And then from that place, Jesus says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Only when we are fully saturated in this unconditional, perfect love of the Father, can we actually give ourselves 
to one another, knowing that we are imperfect. We are all imperfect. This is newsflash, you know? We are all imperfect. People are going to fail you. But the reason why we're not destroyed when somebody we love fails us, which will inevitably happen, is because we're first grounded in God's love that will not fail. If we put that burden on someone else who is imperfect, we're going to be destroyed and our relationship is going to be destroyed. But because our security is based on a God who cannot fail, then we are freed to love one another without agenda, knowing that we ourselves are imperfect and the person that we are loving is also imperfect. So this is a picture of what it means to feast on God together. It allows not only you to love imperfect people, but also in imperfect situations. Even if, God forbid, you are surrounded by enemies. Psalm 23, it talks about, you know, God leading us through not just beside quiet waters and green pastures, but also through the valley of the shadow of death. And even there, God's love is sufficient. And then it goes on to say, you prepare a table, a feast before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So the power of the gospel isn't that there are no enemies around us. It's that you can actually rest even in the presence of your enemies, even in the midst of suffering through life, even in the midst of injustice or brokenness or betrayal or persecution. He prepares a table before you. He anoints your head with oil and he chases you down with goodness and love. You're able to dwell in his house forever because of this. This is the courageous defiance that comes from the gospel of Jesus, a freedom and a power and a confidence that transcends our circumstances. Now, I don't know how to believe in the gospel in any other way. Like, I I don't know how to believe in this God and read through the pages of this Bible without, without that, that missing piece of, man, I need to, I need to savor this. I need to delight in this. I need to actually love God, not just tolerate him through this life. I actually want to love him. And this is the only way that I know how to believe in the gospel. There must be a sense of celebration. There must be a sense of enjoyment. There must be true firsthand relationship with him. We must know that there's a place at the father's table for me and for you. And from that place, our teaching, our prayer, our worship, our service, our giving, they all are able to stem from a life-giving call to love God and to love one another. Now, second proponent or second pillar of this vision statement, it isn't just to feed on God together, but also to call others to the feast. It's not sufficient just for me and you to be around the table and sing Kumbaya and hold hands and just be content with that. We're actually called to call others to the feast. We are exhorted to call others to the feast. Matthew 22, it reads this way. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. Now, going back to an illustration that Pastor JP gave 
last week, the self-proclaimed hype beast, right? He preached last week and he said, when there's something so good, like for example, a dish that is so good, that is like life changing and mind blowing to you, you have to like, you can't help but hype it up and like evangelize to everybody, you know, about it. And it's because you've tasted and you've seen that it is good. It is so satisfying that it becomes natural to bring others into it. Now, let me ask you this question. Everybody who's on social media, don't you have that one friend who's really, really into CrossFit? And they're like always posting about CrossFit? Or don't you have the friend who's like really, really into their keto diet? Like they're always, that's all they're posting about their keto diet. None of these things are bad, by the way. And if that's you, don't feel any shame or essential oils or Randy's donuts, like whatever it is that they're really, really, really about, like that's all they post about. And they're not like, oh, I don't, I hope to not infringe on your social media newsfeed. No, they're like bold. They're like, this is so good. Randy's donut, bacon maple donut is like life changing, an explosion of flavor in your mouth. And they're not like shy about that. People will boldly evangelize and proselytize people regarding this one thing that they're passionate about. They genuinely believe that it is important and it's necessary for you to spread the word. It's a natural thing to broadcast this and draw others into it. In the same way, once we've tasted and we've seen that this feast, that the satisfaction that we have at God's table, it's real and it's life-changing and it's enjoyable, you're free to actually bring others into it without having to be really apologetic about it. You don't have to be like, uh, I hope this isn't you know, too hard for you to hear and like, oh, I'm so sorry that I'm bringing up Jesus and I'm so sorry if you're really busy. But when you've tasted and you've seen that God is good, it actually becomes very natural and very freeing and empowering to actually say, look, my life has actually changed because of Jesus. And I'm not in this because I have to, I'm in this because I want to. And God's, God's favor and his grace and his gospel has changed my life. And I can't help but talk about it. It's like telling people you don't want to miss this. Trust me, nothing you're doing right now is better than this feast. There's a story in the the Bible that depicts this very well, and that's in Luke 15. It's a story of the prodigal son. And if you have time, I I don't have a whole lot of time to go into it. If you have time, read Tim Keller's The Prodigal God. I Believe me, it's going to be like a mind-blowing book, and it's going to give you deeper insights into the gospel. But basic gist of the story is this man had two sons, and one of them ran off with his money, wasted it all, and then came crawling back. And... In this story, we see how in our sin, in our brokenness, although we turn away from the father and squander his riches, his gifts, his, the life that he has given us, when we turn around, what we see the father doing is running out to meet us. In Luke 15, it says it this way, but while he was, while the prodigal son was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Spoiler alert, we're about to see a feast. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The older brother became angry when he heard about this feast. And he refused to actually go into this banquet. 
So his father, in the same way that he went out and ran out to meet his younger son, he went out and pleaded with the older brother. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. The message is the same, whether it be to the younger brother who squandered his wealth or the older brother who actually, although he never left home, his heart was hardened and he was far away from the father as if he had gone to a far off country. In that same way, the message is the same. There is a feast. So come, regardless of your past, regardless of whether you're a rebel or you're a religious person, regardless of that, regardless of your age, gender, race, background, your sins, your past, This feast, this gospel is for you. Come. That is the message of the gospel. So we talked about what it means to call others to the feast. The first thing, it is feasting on God yourself. Like you yourself have to feast on God. And you do that with other people. Second, it is you call others to the feast. Once you've tasted and you've seen that God is good, that there's true community that gathers around the gospel, then you can't help but to call others. The third part, the third proponent of this is preparing for the end times feast. We're called not only to feast on God and call others to this feast, but also to prepare for the feast. The feast of all feasts, the end times feast. We must ask ourselves this question. After all the feasting, after all the calling others to it, where is this all headed? What is this all for anyway? And we have to ask that question. Thankfully, this question doesn't go unanswered in the Bible. The Bible is crystal clear about where this is all headed. In Revelation 19, it says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting. So it's like, have you ever been in like an arena filled with people and they're worshiping together? It's like, you can't even hear this one individual voice. You hear like, <sighs> like, like it kind of sounds like that. <laughs> That's the worst thing to do during COVID times. Don't do that. But It sounds like rushing waters and shouting and peals of thunder. And this is what they are crying out. Hallelujah for our Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of a lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. I need to be really, really, really clear, almost to the point of repeating myself regarding this one point. The good news of the gospel without the return of Christ is a gospel that has no good news. It's a gospel that is incomplete at best. The gospel message that doesn't talk about the return of Christ is an incomplete gospel message. It's not a fringe thing. It's not a let's think about it later. It's not just, oh, this is a theme that only certain kind of Christians and certain kind of ministries are supposed to care about. No, this isn't an integral part of the gospel. I would go as far as to say that a gospel message that doesn't include the second coming is a non-biblical heretical gospel because all it does 
is it gives us hope for this lifetime and that alone. There's no future. There's no glorification. There's no eternity with Christ. There's no end point and end goal in everything that we do. It is an incomplete gospel. Now, the question that always gets asked is, why does it matter now anyway? We'll get there when we get there. Like, we'll worry about that there. We'll cross that bridge when we get to that. And my answer to that, it matters because it has massive repercussions in how we actually live today. We have, you know, a couple or a few engaged people in our congregation. Pastor JP is one of them. And actually, Pauline is in the room as well. Sorry to call you guys out. But imagine, right, they got engaged only a few months ago. But imagine, you know, a year passed, two years passed, ten years passed, and there still is no wedding date in sight. You're like, what in the world? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pauline is like doing this to JP. <laughs> It'd be like, what in the world is this ring about then? Like, take the ring back. It means nothing if there's no end sight and goal. Like, it doesn't mean anything. So when we're talking about living this life, trusting Jesus and him having secured us to be one with him. And yet we never talk about the wedding feast to come. We never talk about the full consummation of the gospel. We never talk about that. It's like saying, I care so much about the engagement. We'll get to the wedding when we get there. Like, well, I don't really need to prepare right now. I don't really need to send out invitations right now. I actually don't need to pray into my future marriage or get premarital counseling or work through my issues or work through communication because we'll get there when we get there. That is the most foolish thing ever. An engagement period is so important because you have to prepare yourself for the future that is to come. You're going to live life together. You're going to see each other every day. You better have worked out your communication problems. You better have worked through your past. You better have worked through your expectations. You better have worked through all those things. And that's what engagement is about. It's about anticipation. It's about preparation. It's about urgency. And there's an end goal in sight. And it's the same when it comes to us talking about the second coming of Christ. We can't just leave that as... We'll we'll get there when we get there. It doesn't really matter for right now. No, actually, the way that we live life, the decisions that we make in this lifetime, the sacrifices that you make in this lifetime, even the way that you are navigating through this COVID season where there's a lot of pressures all around, there's a lot of you know uncertainties all around, even the way that you live out the gospel in this season, it has massive repercussions in how prepared you're going to be for the second coming as well. Matthew 25 says it this way. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in their jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom come out and meet him. And then it continues on to say, you know, what happens with the foolish virgins, but the virgins who are ready, the five wise virgins, they, uh, they went in with him to the banquet, a feast, the wedding banquet. So there's a readiness, a preparation, 
a sense of urgency, a sense of awaiting, not something indefinitely in the future and abstract, but something sure and tangible and real that actually gives us a purpose for today. There is a wedding day coming. There's a day coming and we're called to be prepared for it. No matter what generation you live in, whether you believe that you live in the end times generation or not, you're still called according to the Bible. You're still called to be ready for it. It's not just in an ominous way, but we'll get to this in, in future weeks as we go over what, what, you know, an introduction series on the end times. But for those who haven't delved into the study of end times and might feel a bit of hesitation when it comes to this topic, let me encourage you with this. We have a very, very skewed and very warped view of the end times because according to the Bible, more than the Antichrist and the mark of the beast and more than buying cans of tuna and going into a bunker somewhere to wait it out, more than waiting for the end of the world, more than plagues and pests and global upheaval, it is primarily about the full unveiling of the person of Jesus Christ in his glory. The conquering king, the desire of the nations, the hope in the midst of the darkness, the bridegroom finally coming for his bride. It is about his bride that is tested and true, purified, resilient, powerful, and persevering in the midst of trials and tribulations. It is about that. That's what end times is about. It's about us finally getting to meet our bridegroom face to face. And everything that we've only gotten a glimpse of, just a foretaste of in this lifetime, we'll get to fully savor, fully see, fully take part in when that day comes. And that is something worth living for. That is something worth sacrificing for. When that is what your goal is at the end, you know, at the end of your race, if that is what you're walking towards, you're going to start sprinting. You're not just like, taking your time and reaching the end goal. No, like you want to get there and you want to get there well because the reward is that enticing. Now, as I asked the praise team to come back up and get ready to lead us in a song of response, I want to invite everybody who's tuning in, whether you're part of our community or not, whether you're just you know dropping in for um, our live stream or not, I want to invite you to believe this for yourself. What is it that you're called to in this lifetime? In the mere 80, 90, maybe even 100 years that God has given you on this side of eternity. What is even this year, 2020, where everything is getting shaken, everything is getting rocked. What is even this year supposed to be about? What should be our response of faith, what should be our response of worship and delight and talking to others who more than ever before need this hope, who need to know that there's someone who's good and sovereign behind all of this? What should be the plumb line and the undercurrent of your life right now? And as a church, as a community, what are we going to be about? What is our discipleship program? What is our house of prayer ministry? What are our Sunday services, our Bible reading groups, our prayer, our worship, our giving? What is it all going to be about? What is it all going to be for? 
calling all to the feast. One is about feasting on God together. This is the great commandment. Love God with everything that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. Second, it is about calling others to the feast. This is the great commission. We are made to call others to the feast. The hungry, the thirsty, the spiritually bankrupt, the hopeless, the broken, the depressed, the self-sufficient, the proud, the arrogant, the ones who are in denial, the ones who feel alone in the crowd, the ones who suspect that all their success won't grant them the happiness that they so desperately desire. We're called to call each and every one of these people to the feast. And lastly, we're called to prepare for the end times feast. There is a great return coming. And we're not just looking back at what God has done in the past. We're looking forward. We're a forward-looking community that yearns and longs and prepare for, prepares for not just any feast, but the great end times feast, the feast of all feasts. We're called to discern the times, to partner with God's purposes, And to be one with the cry of the spirit and the bride that says, come, Lord Jesus, come. This is who we've been called to be. I'm going to lead us just in a time of prayer before we go into a song of response. And if you're sitting at home right now thinking this is all good and well, but you don't know my struggles, you don't know my wrestling, you don't know that I feel like I've failed the last few months that we've been stuck at home. You don't know that it's actually really hard for me, that every time I step into my workplace, every time I go back to my family, every time I deal with my roommates, every time that I deal with my financial issues, everything that you're saying is so nice and so ideal, but that's nothing like my life looks like right now. And if that is you today, this is what the gospel says to you. That you don't have to have it all together. You don't have to have a game plan and resources and have it all planned out. Simply take a step forward and trust the Lord with your life. Doesn't mean that answers are going to come quickly. It doesn't mean that Overnight, everything's going to change. But it does mean that you won't be alone in dealing with this. Invite the God who has all power, all resources, all patience, all forgiveness. The God who has all of this at his disposal. Invite him in and watch him work in your life. There's situations that we were not designed to solve on our own. And perhaps you're going through a situation like that. Where you feel like up until now, I've been able to take care of myself. But this is a whole new level. I cannot, I cannot solve this problem on my own. The good news is you weren't meant to and you don't have to. Invite God into your circumstances. And simply watch a good father, a good provider, a good leader, a good shepherd intervene and provide for you in these circumstances. Let me pray for us, Father. As we come before you, sometimes we feel so weak, so inadequate. We feel like we've squandered everything you've given us, every opportunity you've given us. 
all the time, all the resources you've given us, it feels like we've failed you. It feels like we've done exactly what we shouldn't have done with what you've given us. But we ask God that before the voice of the accuser, before the self-condemnation that we often speak over ourselves, before these things, we would hear the voice of the Father saying, come. We hear the voice of the Father saying, you don't have to deal with this on your own. We hear the voice of the Father saying, it's okay, we'll work on this together. We hear the voice of the Father say, you squandered your third opportunity, here's a fourth, just come. We thank you, God, for your forgiveness today, your mercy and your grace that is new to us every morning. We thank you, Father, that what you have designed for us, what you've planned for us, what you've predestined us for, it's not just barely making it through, like barely crossing over the finish line when our days are done, but you've designed us to run this race, to do it with confidence, to do it with the strength, the power that only the Spirit can give us. You've called us to fight the good fight and you've given us everything that we need for this journey. So we recommit ourselves to you, Father. We ask God that if we've been in a place of darkness or stagnancy or apathy, if we found it so hard to connect with you in this season, Father, give us another chance. Give us another opportunity today to meet with you for you to wash away the shame, for you to wash away the condemnation, and for us to find ourselves before a Father who loves us, who forgives us, who longs to meet with us even right now. We thank you, Father, for your mercy and your grace. May this freedom that we have in the gospel and this courage that comes from the gospel be with us. Hold us fast. Anchor us in times of shaking. We thank you, Father, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.